Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here with David Scott. Colgo, it's fantastic to be back as always. Uh, and our guest this week, back on the podcast, fantastic guest who's been here with us a few times and made some excellent calls along the way, Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ Bank. Thanks very much for having me. Always a pleasure. Okay, let's uh, dive in. Um, the small number of words from the, the RBA this week, huge if you think about it. It's got every economist in the country talking and it's about whether or not uh, lending standards are racing away from where they should be. David, do you want to take us in on that? What do they say? What did they say? They said the 10 words was supervisory measures have contributed to some strengthening of lending standards. Now, the emphasis on some in that, uh, that particular sentence um, it was definitely a, a step back from what they were communicating in their first statement of the year in February, where they are a lot more confident sounding in terms of what was going on with the, uh, what they were saying with lending standards. Um, and it just raised the question, not among the entire economic community, but certainly uh, some prominent economists, uh, thought that it may mean that you might see some tighter restrictions around, uh, around lending, particularly to investors. Um, Joanne, how did you see this? Look, I think those changes are important, and it does seem like the RBA's commentary around the housing market, or as David said, their confidence around what's happening in the housing market is more qualified than it was. Uh, and, you know, the data shows that. We know that we've had a resurgence in house price growth. We've had very high auction clearance rates. And we've started this year really with a bang in Sydney and Melbourne on high volume and high clearance rates. And we know that lending finance has picked up and that that's been driven by investors again. So we've got this investor-led sort of resurgence in the housing market. Yeah, it's. Um, do, do you feel concerned now at this point about um, where the price growth is in in, um, in the property market, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne? Yeah, look, I think it's a really difficult uh, topic, and often economists tend to talk about the housing market, but the reality is, is there's no such thing as the housing market. It's a market in a market in a market in a market. So it depends where you live. It depends your state. Um, suburb, it depends what you've bought as well. So I think the difficulty from a policymaker's perspective is that we've got very strong house price growth in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, but not really elsewhere in the country. Uh, and of course, monetary policy is quite a blunt tool. We can't, it doesn't sort of target one particular area or one particular type of the housing stock. So uh, I think it's a really difficult challenge for policymakers. Yeah, definitely. Like I just, I'm looking through some of the other figures from CoreLogic that were released uh, earlier this week, and I'm oh, sorry, last week, I should say. And year on year growth in Sydney uh, dwelling prices, so that's both apartments and houses, 18.4% in a year. Melbourne, 13.1%. Uh, Canberra was, uh, was in third place, um, distant, uh, distant third at 10. 10.4 and very mixed bag elsewhere. And the thing that I just find remarkable, and this is I think where the concern is starting to build, is that from January 2009, so give or take the, uh, the, the nadir of the, uh, the global financial crisis, Sydney dwelling prices up 105%, Melbourne up 88%. 
Uh, you look across the rest of the capitals, and this is where Joe was talking about the, the varying aspects of the Australian property market. Uh, there's nothing that's really grown more than uh, the inflation. In real terms, a lot of uh, capital city house prices have actually gone backwards. Right, so in, in, in Perth, what are we up to now? Um... Oh, Perth's uh, a minuscule 5.5% in nominal terms. So in, you can tell that uh, that's probably going to put it backwards at least by you know, 10, 15% in real terms over that period of time, which is amazing. It, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? it was, you know, I remember Wayne Swan, when he was treasure, treasurer, talking about how we've got a patchwork economy. Um, but all economies are patchwork, right? I, I remember, you know, there were certain periods of time when I was growing up where, you know, back in Ireland, where you've got small towns where there's a, maybe a company that leaves um, and it guts the town, right? Um, now, we've seen something pretty similar here in Australia at a national level. Um, there's been a huge, huge demand and a shortage of supply for some of the stuff that we dig out of the ground in Western Australia. Um, that has all sort of been resolved through huge levels of investment um, through the early 2000s, mid, uh, sort of towards the, around the 2008-2010 uh, uh, period. Um, and that's now come away. Um, so if you look in Perth now, sure. There's, it's exactly that. There's a few companies that were there before that just aren't there anymore. Um, and you get a resultant fall in demand for housing um, and a resultant you know, surge in interest in living in other parts of the country because the jobs have moved elsewhere. Definitely. Well, that's what we've seen in the, uh, the, the years since 2011. A lot of those big mining projects... Um, Ended. You saw a lot of uh, no construction workers going shift from WA, the Northern Territory, South Australia, to the likes of Melbourne and, and Sydney. Uh, that's where a lot of the population growth, surprisingly enough, has uh, been concentrated as well. Uh, and then you look at uh, those two cities as well, Melbourne and, uh, and Sydney, have done, uh, you know, in terms of price growth of housing, they're the ones who have also outperformed. So my summary for um, the RBA's statement this week would have been, hey, rates are on hold forever. Um, and, um, <laughs> um, and, and we might be, we, we might be having some conversations with the banks. Uh, Joe, do you want to uh, give us your, 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 uh, take on what, what they said this week? Sure. Well, look, despite your chuckling, we actually do have rates on hold over our forecast horizon. So, you know, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, and I think the statement that you got, uh, from the RBA tells sort of part of that story, right? So the, the commentary, uh, updated, uh, the facts around around the GDP data that we got the previous week. So economic activity looks okay. It's bounced back from that weak Q3 number and, and we expect the economy actually to continue to, to run quite well. Uh, obviously the statement highlighted uh, growing concerns around the housing market and uh, around um, house prices in particular. So in a sense, when you think about that, what that means for financial stability, it almost sort of makes the case to hike rates. The, the missing component in that story though, of course, is around wages and inflation and the RBA is still a, inflation targeting central bank. It's still a very important part of the economic outlook. And actually, uh, the RBA themselves have a very low inflation sort of profile going forward, right? They've got core inflation back at 2% uh, later this year, and that's the very bottom of their policy target band. But actually, if you look at the data over the last few weeks, the risk to that look like they're building to the downside. And this week's statement um, didn't change their commentary around wages. Now, what they had said is still sort of factually correct. 
Um, but actually, the risks are now that wage growth is, hasn't stabilised and is actually still decelerating. You know, and, and where Australia is in terms of the, the, the where we receive our inflationary um, uh, inputs, looking this morning, oil dived below 50 bucks. Um, you know, if that was to be sustained, then you'd have a very, you know, let's not speculate on where um, where the oil price is going to be over the next uh, 24 hours, rather, <laughs> never mind um, where it's been over the last uh, couple of years. But if it's around about 50 bucks, or if it's sinking a little bit, then it's just very hard to see any sources of inflationary pressure um, in, in the, the, the broader economy. Oh, head, head, sorry, headline inflation will certainly be impacted by that. Core inflation should, in a lot of aspects, go and strip those in, impacts out. Um, and to be honest, uh, a pullback in, uh, in petrol prices may be actually slightly beneficial. It would probably put a bit of extra uh, cash in people's pockets. Hopefully not to go and pay down bet, uh, debt or to go and uh, maybe go and lever up with another investment property or not, but to actually go and spend in the real economy would be fantastic. Yeah, look, I, I think about inflation um, quite simplistically in a sense, right? So the question I ask at the moment is what can drive inflation higher rather than what's driving it lower? We know inflation is weak. So for me, I think the question is, you know, which element of inflation can lift and, and lift overall core inflation back within that band? And, you know, the way I think about it is I think about trade war prices and I just see that international competition piece still really strong. Uh, there's very limited pricing power by retailers. They can't actually put their prices up. Uh, and I don't see that going away anytime soon. We know that the rental component of inflation, and that's 7% of the basket, is, is decelerating as we've got all this apartment supply coming on stream. And the, AB, uh, the ABS is going to include, the, uh, for the first time, uh, apartment rents as well, which have actually been going backwards, according to, to some different groups. That's exactly right. And they'll include apartments in their new dwelling purchase prices as well, or the cost of building a new home. So there's some downward drag from that. Uh, administered prices, you know, I've always thought of they are what they are, but they've actually been decelerating year on year and they have this sort of lagged response to the economy. So what are you left with? Well, you're left with effectively services inflation, which is highly correlated to wage growth. So wage growth is and really important. When you've got un unemployment at, uh, in the high fives, um, five and three quarter percent, yep, um, as the RBA likes to call Underemployment at, at over eight percent, right? So... For me, to get inflation back to the band, you have to get a lift in wage growth. And we're just not seeing that. And we've got over 8% of our workforce have a job but want to work more hours, right? So as a business, if you see more demand, what do you do? You offer your existing workforce more hours at the same wage rate. So I, I worry about the inflation piece. I think actually, you know, there's all this talk about the housing um, part of the economy, and that's important. But... You, can you hike rates when you've got an inflation profile that is already low and perhaps the risk now pushing down on the downside? Yeah, um, and you've got me um, a great um, segue into um, something that I was grumbling about on the site this week, which is um, that it's actually going to be companies, I think, um, that are going to have to make the decisions um, in terms of um, lifting people's pay, right? Now, at an aggregate level, um, if you think about just the whole supply of labor um, into, um, if you're a company, there's plenty of people, as you say, underemployment, very high. Uh, unemployment um, is higher than you'd ideally like it. So there's a lot of slack, 
right? So there's, there's people available. Um, how do you get that, that whole transfer of um, wealth happening? You saw, we saw this enormous, um, massive spike in national income um, in the December quarter. It was just like you look at the chart and it is like parabolic is the, the very precise word to, to describe it. But then you saw wages and earnings uh, at the same time going down. Yeah. And, profit, and profits went up. Corporate profits went up. Profits went up, uh, wages went down, national income went through the roof. Um, there was a friend of mine saw that chart and he said, hey, this is what a crime looks like. And I, um, I, uh, look, I, I, I wouldn't go that far myself. Um, and I talked about it during the week. I, I wouldn't go that far um, because as a business, you don't make your decisions and your planning based on a few good months of revenue. Um, you'd be crazy and you would actually be a terrible business manager if you were doing Of course, that. So the, the, a lot of the spike in, uh, in nominal GDP, which was driven by the 9.1% lift in, uh, in terms of trade during the quarter. Obviously, we've seen a couple of good, strong quarters uh, there, thanks primarily to, uh, well, actually almost entirely due to commodity prices, but there's a great deal of doubt as to whether that's going to be sustained. That's, uh, and so, as you said, businesses are concerned, uh, you know, is this actually going to last? And until they get a little bit more confident about that, they're not going to uh, you know, go and pass on those, uh, those better profitability to their staff. Uh, so you need to see a sustained lift, but the reason that, that chart, and we'll try and get up on the side as well, I think, to go and, uh, go and give people an example of what we're talking about, but uh, it reflects you know, the, the abundance of uh, underutilised labour in, uh, in Australia at the moment. Uh, there's heaps and heaps of people willing to go and work and looking for work or wanting to work more, but uh, there's just not enough activity that's being driven in the economy to go and put those people into uh, to full-time work and, and work more hours. And that's exactly right. And we don't, you know, that jump in that terms of trade, as you said, had this big jump and that pushed um, that GDP, um, GDI, sorry, that income story, you know, stronger. But we don't expect that to be sustained over the year ahead. Um, so we actually think that national income will start to grow at about the same rate as GDP, overall mm. GDP in the year ahead. Um, so we don't think commodity prices are going to continue to surge like they have done over the last, you know, six months or so. And, and that's not an uh, outlier view. You know, the consensus view is that commodity prices are around the peak now. And to get growth, you need growth. You yeah. know, it's not just about the level of commodity prices. You need them to keep uh, accelerating from. Yeah, and then the thing is, like, we've already seen uh, coke and coal and, uh, and iron ore are our two biggest goods exports. And we've seen uh, coke and coal already started to go and come off uh, in the December quarter. Uh, it's stabilised recently. I think it's around about 140, 150 bucks a tonne. But back uh, from the twos. Two. Back, back from the twos. And that, that was, uh, you know, undoubtedly a major contributing factor to what we saw, the huge spike in, uh, in terms of trade during the quarter. But uh, even iron ore recently, in the last, uh, last two, three weeks, uh, spot prices uh, have come off by around about 10% as well. So that's another thing. It's, it's starting to go in drag. If it keeps going lower, then you expect that, uh, that boost to incomes that we've seen will actually you know, lessen and may actually reverse. So and part of that, oh sorry, part of that around that commodity piece is 
uh, it's not just about the demand. You know, obviously people are quite optimistic about Chinese growth this year and about their steel utilisation and those sort of things. But actually, a lot of it is supply side disruption. So particularly in the coal, you know, there's the spike in coal prices to to two hundred dollars. Um, that was largely supply disruption, and that's once that that supply disruption got resolved, the prices come back down, right? So you need for commodity prices to have a sustained upswing. You actually need sustained demand-led increase rather than supply disruption. And it is extraordinary. Like when you think about, like if you look back at the chart um, for iron ore, and I, I promise I will put the chart up with when, when we put the podcast up on the site. It's on the site every day. Everyone can go and follow my iron ore every morning. In fact, um, I think I was talking to a bond trader this week who. Um, refers to David Scott's iron ore uh, <laughs> and on Twitter chart. Oh yes, <laughs> um, uh, on a daily basis. Um, but um, like when you look at that, it is extraordinary. And and iron ore, sure, um, we're smoothing out in terms of the, the 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 mix of exports that Australia has, education, tourism, um, uh, but iron ore still is number one. Right, so it's it's the the biggest thing that we get, and when you get the, the those that huge, there's no simple trend in the iron ore price. Um, when you look at the chart, there's a it's a big V, um, and over the last couple of weeks, um, the top of it has started to do that thing, which um, I think in currencies and in uh, in stock futures, it started to do that little um, sort of uh, upside down U shape at the top of that curve, and that's sometimes. I mean, you never know where the chart's going to end up on the right hand side, um, but it is sometimes that's your signal to be a little bit concerned. Yes, all you got to do is watch Chinese steel prices. You watch Chinese steel prices uh, and secondary uh, coal prices, which is a big input as well. Uh, you watch those two things, they'll give you a fairly good indication of where the iron ore price is going to go. They all have a tendency to move in lockstep. There was a change with coke and coal last year, which was a supply disruption, which was enacted by the Chinese government, where they went and curtailed the number of days that their mines could go and operate. Um, but so yeah, if you want to know, uh, know where the iron ore price is going, they all move fairly uh, in sync. So that's just a, a piece of advice if anyone's uh, even genuinely interested in, uh, in looking at uh, you know, iron ore stocks or you know, anything to do with like, as a derivative of, uh, of iron ore pricing. Um, where do you think um, US economic activity now comes into play here with, um, in terms of where China's economy sits, right? Because we've got this big question um, over so the Chinese government saying 6.5%, pulling back their um, growth target just a tiny bit. I don't enough. think that's a bad thing. I actually don't think slightly slower Chinese growth is a bad thing uh, in the sense that you want sustainable growth, not fast growth, right? So from my perspective, I, I, I'm, I'm not too worried about that. And, and look, it's a number, it's an important number. Uh, I, I think China's, you know, it, it always surprises us, right? It, year after year, but you know, people talk about the risk of China, and certainly China's a risk to Australia and to the global economy. But you know, they, they get surprised almost every year at how well China does, how stable China is everything that's sort of going right. So uh, I'm quite positive about China and I think it's really important for Australia and I think it's really important in a, um, in a Trump-led US world that, that we get a Chinese economy that actually is performing quite well. I think it's really encouraging that we've seen China pick up discussions around world trade and free trade. The Chinese president went to Davos. I think that's really encouraging. So there's a lot of encouraging signs out of Asia, actually. Uh, Dave, a little bit of a surprise this week as well. Um, FX reserves in China 
Oh, um, yes. Nobody expected it, but they posted a minor increase. It did, uh, but you've got to remember that the FX reserves data is priced in US dollar terms, so you've always got to take into account what movements the US dollar has against a basket of currencies, um, predominantly the euro and, uh, and other major currencies as well. Um, there were still some signs of capital outflows, but yes, the uh, FX reserves data went and uh, ticked back up to, uh, to 3 trillion, uh, 3.005 trillion, I think it was. Um, but you've got to take into account already in, uh, in March, uh, heading towards midway in March, the US dollar is getting stronger again. Um, that may be exacerbating uh, pressures on capital outflows as well. So there's a lot of different things that uh, you've got to go and look in that particular uh, aspect. Here's a question for you. Why does it matter how much FX reserves that China is holding? You're asking myself? Oh, just for financial stability, to make sure their financial system is funded. Uh, you have uh, you know, people sending their capital offshore. Uh, it creates issues, uh, you know, financial stresses within the Chinese banking system. So that's, in a nutshell, what your, uh, your, your problem is. So um, is this a country, because one of the things, I think they were down from 3.8 trillion, um, and they, they've been heading south. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bit of news around the fact that they passed through the $3 trillion mark. Does it matter? Um, like, does, do, do markets really watch that level of, um, that level of uh, holdings um, by the Chinese government? It's a I think yes. I think markets. I think markets do watch it. But I think one of the problems is that we don't know what the critical number is. So, as you said, there's a bit of press around falling sort of sub three trillion, but we don't know whether three is the threshold to cause financial instability issues in China, or whether the number is three and a half, or two and a half, or one and a half. So we actually don't really know what we're measuring it against. And yeah, I think it's that fear of the uncertainty that creates a yeah, distant market. Correct. There's, there's, there's a variety of different risks that have come out. I think uh, IMF's got, uh, got a figure and, uh, and other like, uh, parties like that. But they all sort of range from like, you know, uh, two and a half through to like, you know, 1.8, 1.7. And yeah, and like how, how long is a piece of string? You know, what, what level would it be that would go and create so many stresses in the uh, financial system that, uh, that would actually go and lead to some sort of economic crash? Uh, no one really knows the answer. And the reality is that target's moving, or not target, that threshold number is moving all the time. It depends on what else is going on in the economy, it depends where growth is, it depends what's driving growth, it depends what's happening on regulatory reform and opening up of capital markets. So it's not just how long is the piece of string, but the string is moving mm. at the same time. There's, there's been some mixed messages out of China as well. That, uh, they said they're 6.5%. Now, I'll, I'll clarify, the 6.5% uh, rate this year is you no... Know, basically what I think a lot of people are deeming to be a floor. So that's their minimum target and their aim to do better is, uh, is, is someone uh, that I was reading this week was, uh, was saying. Um, they made a big, you know, they're talking a lot about financial uh, stability and, uh, and managing financial risk. Uh, the first month of the year, we saw a huge surge in, uh, in total social financing, raising concerns that they're just pump priming again, more debt being used to go and drive growth. Um, and then we got the figures uh, released overnight for February, which uh, came very much sooner than what anyone in the markets were expecting. There's no set time for it. Uh, and total social financing was, uh, was significantly lower. It's about a, a third of the level of what we saw in January. So it's, it's casting mixed messages. You know, on one hand, like, you definitely see a, a jump in lending at the start of the year. They get their new quotas of Chinese banks. They rush out to go and lend. But then all of a sudden, we're seeing a huge curtailment in February. Now, does that mean that they're not going to be... Uh, 
trying to go and, uh, and drive growth by encouraging more credit creation and things on those lines. It's uh, once again, it's one of those questions like, you know, is it start of a longer lasting trend or is it just an anomaly this month and it'll be back a uh, super amount uh, in, in March? You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, we're looking at, um, obviously, the global picture here, but let's talk quickly about um, what policy levers we can, um, can be pulled on the political side. Um, we're heading towards now the um, federal budget will be out in two months' time. So second Tuesday in May. Um, it's always um, marked out with, uh, with red ink uh, on my... Um, on the family diary has been for um, for more than a decade. Now, all of this income that um, we've got from the commodity boom that we've just been discussing, um, obviously very, very helpful. Um, and I think we've been writing about this for a couple of months, that there's, they've laid the groundwork for um, some good news um, over the last six months. Um, but I kind of see, when I see the policy levers, there's minor adjustments maybe to uh, capital gains tax that may be talking about that, that might do something with negative gearing because housing affordability has actually become um, something that politicians need to address, not that it was exciting that everybody's house prices were going up for a while, but now that house prices have got to the point where they're increasing so much that they're actually getting out of um, reach of people who want to own them. Um, and, um, and that's creating a political issue for them because they need votes, right? So if you're um, a, a fiscal policymaker, um, the Chris Bowen or um, on the Labour side or uh, Scott Morrison in the coalition, you've got to be thinking about this. Like, um, sure, the population is older, so there are more votes at the grey end, if you like. Um, and that's okay. So let that kind of take care of itself, um, that you know, we'll protect your assets um, as a matter of public policy. But then you've got, eventually you just get this community thing, um, this community responsibility. right? Um, where does this, how do they go about um, tackling this because um, it's, Joe, I'm going to put this to you, but um, how, where do they start, do you think, in terms of policy options? Because it's politically um, uh, extremely difficult, I think, in terms of the arithmetic. Um, where do they start? Look, it's tough. Uh, the fiscal picture is really tough, right? So if you step back big picture, uh, as you said, we've got an ageing population. We've got a significant budget deficit, which means that we don't have any buffer should another external shock come and hit the economy, particularly with rates at one and a half. Uh, so we, you know, there's this sort of overriding need for medium-term fiscal repair. Um, we need to address recurrent spending. You know, it's just like a household, right? You can't continue to spend more than you earn. Uh, now, there will be some uh, increased revenue as a result of high commodity prices. We've seen a big jump in uh, profitability in mining companies, uh, and also we've had quite strong employment growth, uh, and if that continues, you know, you would expect uh, some improvement in revenue. But, you know, there's still this sort of structural need to, to improve recurrent spending, to get the budget close to 
to balance. So that's really important and of course Australia's AAA credit ratings also under the spotlight so that adds more pressure to try and keep that budget surplus in 2021. And then on, on the flip side is as you said you know you've got this housing affordability issue and it, it is an issue and it's not an easy one to address. Um, and you know there's lots of issues around first home buyers versus as you said an aging population for, who for the most part their major asset is their house, right? Um, they're nearing retirement in a low interest rate world so they need actually quite a strong balance in order to generate enough interest income to, to, um, to, to live on. So I mean, we can talk about little specifics here and there, but really the, the debate so far has been sort of tinkering around the edges and a bit band-aid uh, in its approach. And so I actually think we need to step back and, and look at whole-scale reform. Uh, and I think I've said it on your podcast before, and I still really believe it. You know, I think the GST has to be part of it. The GST is economically a very effective tax. It's a, a relatively fair tax. Um, so if we can have a bigger conversation around the tax piece and increasing the rate of GST or broadening the rate of GST, that then helps to alleviate the, that bigger issue of getting closer to surplus, which frees up funding to do other bits and pieces around what's socially important. So one, one of the ways I sort of think about this is that when you look at the different policy options or the policy leaders, um, so institutionally you've got the Labour Party, coalition, you've got the RBA, um, you've got APRA, and it feels like everybody's kind of sitting around. Um, it's like the reverse of a Mexican standoff in, a, in, in, you know, in an old Western. Um, it, everybody's waiting to see who's not going to move first, right? So it's this complete, it's the, the, there seems to be this incentive somehow for non-action. Uh, and meanwhile, you've got the likes of uh, Pauline Hansen, Nick Xenophon, who are off starting their own little um, saloon down the street saying, hey guys, um, come on down here and, um, and, and join our party. And we're seeing um, that globally. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Disenfranchisement, um, votes for minor parties and quite extreme parties in many cases. Yeah, um, so and like at the coalition level, no, not going to touch negative Geary, right? The market hates the um, Labour idea of um, let's have a royal commission into banks and, and ditch negative gearing. The market hates that. Um, the, you know, the banks don't support it, the, the businesses don't support it. You talk to people about it and they're just deeply uncomfortable with it. Um, but at the same time, on the coalition side, you kind of wonder, well, everybody understands. Businesses too, and business leaders, realise there's a need for some kind of structural reform in the economy. They'd love the coalition to do it, but they're not seeing anything from them. It's, it's always difficult when you have such a slim majority, uh, and I think that uh, works against uh, the, anyone willing to go and push the reforms because it's just such a knife edge, uh, and they know they can lose power so easily in a small policy misstep that the, uh, the electorate won't like, and that's feeding into this process where no one wants to go and do anything in fear of losing office, but the more they do it, the more people are going to be swinging to the, uh, to the fringe parties, and that's only going to continue until we have true leadership to go and say, no, these are the issues that we need to go and address, and here is the plan to go and do it. Put yourself on the line at the electorate in the next election and say, this is our mandate, this is our platform, and this is why we think it can work. I, I'm not holding my breath that that's going to happen, though. Well, you know, um, I, I still think um, my favourite analogy that I've heard um, over the past six months or so um, for why we've got this disruption in, um, in politics globally is 
um, somebody who was in a focus group in the United States and they were asked about Donald Trump uh, and uh, you know lifelong Democrat and he said look um, sometimes to save the village you've got to burn the village and Donald Trump is the nearest flaming torch right very like that is here is a way of talking about you know um, it's a way of encapsulating I think how just fed up people are with intransigence um, at a policy level exactly what we're seeing now um, out of Canberra uh, in my opinion um, you know I personally think that if even if um, Bill Shorten and Chris Bowen got their hands on the tiller, um, I think you'd see a watered-down version of um, what, they're, what they've been proposing. I don't think that you could actually go out and you know, cut off negative gearing for, for good um, um, because the, the consequences would be enormous for household balance sheets. Yeah, and look, that's really important. And it's really important, that household balance sheet, um, perspective. Uh, you know, we've got a period of very low wage growth um, and, and private consumption is 60% of GDP, right? So to keep private consumption humming along around three, uh, which is sort of optimal, you need households to be spending, right? And when wages are growing at less than 2% per year, you know, barely positive in a nominal, in a real sense. Uh, so what has been underpinning spending? Well, actually rising house prices and the wealth effect from that has actually been an important part of what's held private consumption up around 3%. So that's, you know, this whole housing debate so complicated and has so many elements to it that, and all, all quite significant. Yeah, it's component. not just about people being able to afford a house. Correct. I was just going to ask Joe, um, just speaking about uh, the need for consumption, the importance of consumption in the economy, the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Survey, um, it's been very wild recently um, yes. by, by usual standards, um, but there seems to be a trend where confidence is, uh, is moving lower and uh, also concern, somewhat concerned about, um, about family finances. I was wondering if there was any sort of you know, background that you could go and tell the listeners you know, as to what you're seeing in that data and as to why people are becoming a little bit less confident in what they were in the past. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think that's right. You know, overall, overall confidence is actually still quite elevated mm. uh, compared to its long-run averages. But, you know, we ask a variety of questions, but two of those questions are around personal finances. So we ask about your finances today compared to a year ago and to, uh, where you think they'll be in a year's time com compared to today. And actually that sub-index on your current finances compared to a year ago is most highly correlated with actual household spending. So if, if you're looking at the sort of the consumption piece and the retail sales piece, that's the, that's the indicator you want to be looking at. And it's, it's been really volatile, uh, as you said, unusually volatile uh, in the last few months. And I guess we don't really know why in the sense we don't ask consumers why, but um, I, I do wonder whether on the one hand consumers are getting this message that um, you know, employment's lifting, the unemployment rates come down. We know that job insecurity has started to sort of moderate somewhat. So I feel better about my job, but my wage growth is really low. And every time I open a newspaper, it's talking about the risk to the housing market and house prices might fall and apartment supplies coming on stream. And so I think the volatility is coming around these sort of mixed messages about what's going on in the economy versus actual wage growth and, yeah. and the labour market, so the, it's tricky. Because the, the survey's readings on the economy, so you ask one about uh, looking one year ahead and five years ahead, and they are considerably lower than what the ones are for finances? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes. And the five-year one is actually quite low, well below its long-run trend. And I think that comes back to the point you made, um, Paul, about uh, 
people just feel like there's no plan. You know, businesses, consumers feel like there's no big plan, there's no structural reform, there's no, we're not really sure where we're going. And I think that plays out in that week reading for that five year ahead. Yeah, I, I no doubt that, uh, that confidence in the government is definitely a contributing factor to dragging that down. They're not seeing any action, no real plan. Uh, and when people see that, uh, they're naturally thinking, well, they've got no plan. Where's the economy going to be in that sense? And uh, I think that probably explains a lot of the, uh, you know, the, 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 how pessimistic people are in relation to what the, uh, the outlook is. You know, and, and just on the political side, it's extraordinary. We've got this um, election coming up in uh, Western Australia. You've got Colin Barnett, who's the longest serving premier in the country. He's been premier there in, uh, since 2008. Uh, the signs are building that the coalition is, not, is on for a complete hiding. Um, in that They need to lose... 10 seats um, and uh, government will change hands. I think they, um, uh, you know, it's a, like a 60 seat parliament, 59 seat parliament. Um, losing 10 seats is a, like, the, that's a big shift in a, in a parliament that size. Um, that it looks like they may lose 12, um, you know, um, which is a complete um, trashing. But when you think about this whole thing of like, what is the alternative, right? Um, One Nation, right, in WA, there's a lot of regional areas, a lot lot of regional seats, and they were polling 10% um, a couple of weeks back. Most recent poll, nine, right? So people have had a good look at them, and, you know, they've done that preference deal with um, the, the Liberals, and people have actually said, you know what, maybe just the other mob that we're kind of more attuned to, like... Like, just kick out the government. Don't, you know, we don't need to, um, just, just vote, vote anger is, is, it seems to be the, the whole thing. They've had a, it's not about, we want protectionist, um, uh, trade policies or we want, um, less multiculturalism or anything like that. That, uh, for me, that's my read on this. It's not about those, value-based things. Um, it's about like turf out the guys who are in charge because, again, just it's it's about burning down the village. Um, I, I I really want to see the the degree of voters who actually don't even turn up for the election. I'd love to go and see statistics after it's actually held because, as you've pointed out, I don't think anyone's got really. Uh, no strong views on either side and uh, either side's probably not really presented a, a strong case for government um, and I just wonder whether that's going to compulsory voting of course but uh, I just wonder how many people would donkey vote and all not actually bothered turning up. Yeah, donkey vote or vote for minor parties that they don't really um, identify with or understand what their policies are or understand the candidates um, and they'll just vote for them because there's something different. And that's exactly why if you look at Brexit, you look at Trump, you look at uh, even the federal election here last year, uh, you know, the polls have actually not been great predictors of the outcome and it's exactly that sort of mentality that's sprouting out these, these um, unexpected outcomes. Yeah. Um, what do you think about um, Europe, by the way, uh, Joe, as a, as a risk broadly, right? Because we've got a couple of elections coming up, um, particularly France, um, very interesting. Um, can I ask for your take on that? Yeah, so, and we've got Netherlands next week, so that'll be important. And, you know, a, a lot of the issues in Europe are obviously similar to what we've seen in, in other parts of the world, and, and as we've discussed here, uh, I guess it's overlaid with, though, the, the sort of risk around the stability of, of the EU and the Euro. So, 
Uh, I think uncertainty in Europe is quite high, and the, the readings and the way that we measure uncertainty is actually a lot higher in Europe than it, than it is in the US. Uh, so I, I, I think it's, it's a concern, uh, and I think you know, the ramifications are potentially really quite significant. Um, yeah, so, so, um, but the economy uh, is actually doing quite well, yeah. you know, so uh, unfortunately it's sort of, you know, Europe's finally got unemployment rates falling, I mean they haven't got any wage or inflation at the moment, but activity looks alright, the, the ECB look like they've effectively finished easing, they'll finish their tapering program, but they seem more confident about the, about the, the future, um, so you know, it's, it seems a little bit sad actually, you've sort of got the economy finally after years starting to look a little bit better and then you're going to overlay it with all this political uncertainty and and we know that I mean I get you know I'm an economist not a political analyst right so the way I think about it is what does it mean for the economy um, and we know that political uncertainty impacts businesses uh, confidence in investment in planning for the future in employing and we know that it impacts households decisions around major uh, investment decisions and purchases so uh, to that extent, you know, I hope that this political uncertainty doesn't actually stall the recovery in Europe. Yeah, it's 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 completely fascinating. I think, like when you look at um, where uh, Europe is, I've heard it uh, said that a very simple way of looking at the world at the moment is that there are actually quite, like broadly speaking, the upside uh, looks pretty bright, um, and and there's plenty of room for things to. Uh, continue to improve and all looks great. The global economy looks good. But the downside risks are much, much bigger. Um, like whether it's, you know, they're, they're proportionately... Perhaps lower probability but, but bigger impact, right? Precisely, precisely. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. I want to ask both of you, um, the Australian dollar, right, um, widely seen as a good proxy for risk appetite around the world, right? So... If uh, things are going reasonably well, Aussie dollar gets a little bit of a bid. Um, both of you um, have uh, watched this um, on a minute-by-minute basis, not even day-to-day, <laughs> through the course of your careers. Explains a lot about my mentality. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, with the RBA seeming like it's um, you know on hold until 2045, um, can I ask... Um, uh, that's, I'm being facetious, but uh, RBA looks like it's on uh, on hold for a while. Foreseeable future. Yeah, foreseeable for the foreseeable future. Um, uh, Dave, can I ask for your take on um, because obviously lower dollar would be um, helpful for the economy, something around seventy two cents, and I think we're trading around seventy five, seventy six at the moment. It would be, and I think it will get there eventually. But uh, I don't see a huge decline in the Australian dollar. Um, a lot of it will be premised on what the Fed does, obviously. Um, and so we've got to remember that uh, the, the hike next week uh, is basically fully priced in from the, uh, from the US Fed. So that'll be delivered on, uh, on March 15th, uh, March 16th, uh, our time. Uh, so anyone watching the currency markets uh, know for a reaction, it will all come down to the economic projections, particularly the, uh, the medium Fed dot plot, the dots, uh, my favorite, uh, favorite piece of Fed paraphernalia. Now we'll get the fan as well. Yes. We'll get dots and fans. Oh, yes. So it's really exciting. But uh, at the moment, the markets have got, uh, got two hikes this year uh, fully priced in and a little bit of a third. Um, if the Fed goes and keeps their, uh, their targets unchanged, they're still looking for three this year, including uh, next week. Um, if there's a small tweak upwards, 
look that, at. That, that could be, that will be the determining factor of whether we see the Aussie dollar sharply lower in the, uh, the morning after. What do you think, Joe? Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I actually think um, for the market and for currency markets, uh, what the Fed's thinking about 2018 is really important. Mm. You know, there's quite a strong consensus around this year, you know, three hikes this year. Um, they've got three in for 2018. But the US economy looks good, right? You know, the indicators are looking good. There seems to be a bit of animal spirits coming back in, all those sort of things. We know there's some fiscal stimulus coming. Don't know how much yet. Yeah, that'll be a, a major factor as well. That'll be, yeah, but the risk is that you go from the Fed going once a year to, you know, possibly once a quarter by 2018. So, so the 2018 numbers will be really important for the currency. But look, it's not just around the interest rate differential, right? It's also around the commodity price story. We've got commodity prices peaking around now. I don't think they're going to go back to their lows, but I think they're going to come off in the second half of this year. So uh, that combined with the Fed story, we've got the RBA on hold. Um, we've got the Aussie lower as well, um, down around that 72 cents at the end of the year. In a nutshell, I think it comes down to Fed policy and how China's economy performs. If you put those two together, that's pretty much going to drive the Aussie dollar. That's right. Uh, we, we sometimes talk about this like you know, the, the, the simplest thing to um, keep an eye on is how's the US economy going and how's the Chinese economy going and kind of everything else just kind of goes from there, right? So if you've, if you've got a bead on that, um, uh, you're pretty good. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, our guest this week has been Joanne Masters uh, from ANZ Bank, a senior economist uh, there, and um, a just brilliantly insightful analyst. Thank you so much well, thank um, you. For, for taking the time to, to come and join us on the show. Always a pleasure. Um, and all, uh, as always, uh, uh, David Scott, uh, Global Markets and Economics uh, Correspondent for Business Insider. Uh, Dave, um, uh, another uh, great show, another great week, and another um, wild um, uh, few days in the Australian economy. Oh, it's never a dull moment down under. So, no, it's a uh, great chat. And, uh, Joe, thanks for coming back. It was uh, you know, fantastic and uh, going to discuss uh, some very important issues that are going on at the moment. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're all on Twitter individually. Joanne Masters, David Scott, Paul Colgan. Uh, the show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. And we'll talk to you soon. podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.